Hello and welcome to One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide business leaders with the latest commentary on evolving business and economic news that impacts healthcare, business, and the workplace. In each episode, our One Digital advisors will be addressing evolving coronavirus situations, translating them for employers so they can be proactive for their organizations and develop their business planning strategies. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Thursday's edition of the COVID-19 Employer Advisory Session. My name is Bill Carew, and I'm the Chief Operating Officer here at One Digital. With me today, we have an illustrious panel. Julie Cape is back with us. She was with us on Tuesday. Julie heads up our small business unit, everything under 50 employees. Annette Bechtold, who's our Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and everything compliance related. These are the happiest days of her life whenever these new bills come down the pike. And then Chris Turin, who also joined us on on Tuesday from our uh, West Region Managing Principal, former entrepreneur himself, uh, providing some real life business experience, not just as a, a benefits leader in the industry, but also as a former small business owner. So we are very pleased to have you join us again. And these times certainly are very busy and uh, in, in many cases, exhausting for many of us as we try to navigate this landscape. So we do really appreciate you taking the time to join us. We've gotten terrific feedback from these sessions, lots of back and forth, lots of questions that you've offered up. And today's, today's session really is about those questions. We've picked 10 major questions that have been very, very common. And then off of that, we've got about 20 or 25 other questions that we'll be able to address along the way. And so... As, um, as we navigate this, we're hoping we're gonna be able to address many, many of your concerns as we address the, uh, the most recent legislation with the CARES Act and some of the uh, related opportunities and related challenges that come with navigating this crisis. So uh, our format today is gonna to be fairly simple. We're gonna work through those, um, those, those 10 questions and then we'll have conversations around them. The one thing that I wanted to start off with though is just to provide, I have to, we have to provide this disclaimer a little bit. A lot of what we're talking about is related to tax and legal and now we're getting into the Small Business Administration SBA world. And so we're, we're not licensed to provide advice in those areas. So please take this as, as good background and hopefully practical information that you can use. But of course, be sure to consult with your appropriate counsel um, as you as we head down this line, particularly as we as we look at some of these loan opportunities that are available. So without further ado, we've got five main areas that we're going to be hitting on. Um, support for businesses. In specific, we're going to get into the Paycheck Protection Program, which is the most popular part of the CARES legislation for small business. We'll be talking about uh, supporting individuals through this process. What happens if I make uh, benefit plan changes mid-year and, and how is the regulations changed to address some of those benefit plan changes? And the market response when carriers in local states and in local communities make changes, how do we navigate those uh, opportunities as well? So we'll start off with a little bit of the landscape and this is a very busy slide, but we thought we would start here so that we could really focus on um, a couple of the programs that are most important to you. Now, um, we're gonna, the, the most popular one is over to the right. That's the, the, uh, the um, Paycheck Protection Program. 
And again, as I said, we'll spend some time talking about that. The economic injury disaster loans working to the left. And then um, the other main item is the second box, which is assistance for small and I'm sorry, for mid-sized businesses. This is companies that are more than 500 employees. So why don't don't we start there? Not a lot of information, but uh, Chris, can you just kind of give us a, a little bit of a thumbnail on that? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Bill. I think that, uh, you know, the first uh, two that you mentioned, the Paycheck Protection Program, we spent a lot of time on that uh, last week, and and rightfully so, because that's a a real lifeline to uh, employers, uh, and uh, they're getting that up and running very uh, quickly, and all the loan proceeds are forgivable if you follow the requirements. Uh, So, uh, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, I think we're all a lot more familiar with that. We'll address some uh, detailed questions uh, that we've received uh, since. The economic injury disaster loans uh, and loan advances, I think, also a very interesting program. These loans are not forgivable as the the PPP program, uh, but they can be uh, equally valuable to an employer. And I just want to point out a couple of things that I think are important about the economic injury disaster loans. So number one, uh, they're streamlined underwriting. And in fact, if you're applying up to 200,000, it's uh, using a credit score mechanism only uh, for approval. And these loans uh, are direct. You have to go directly to the SBA's website. Uh, you can receive up to $2 million in, with maturities as long as 30 years at 3.75%. Uh, and the terms are really uh, um, uh, figured out on a case-by-case uh, basis. But I, I would encourage employers uh, to look into those loans. If you apply and you're denied or you apply and you're accepted, you're going to get $10,000 up front regardless, and it does not need to be repaid if you uh, – are denied for the program. So I think that's something people should be uh, really paying attention to. Now for employer, mid-sized employers, I think uh, the, uh, you know, the SBA is doing some things that I think are uh, important in terms of mid-sized business loans and loan guarantees. And that's under the title four of the CARES Act. So this is for employers between 500 and 10,000 employees. Uh, these, These employers do have to be domiciled in the United States with significant operations and the majority of its employees in the U.S. as well. You can't be a debtor in bankruptcy. Uh, you, you have to uh, be able to test that the uncertainty of the economic conditions currently due to the crisis make the loan necessary to support ongoing operations. Uh, there's there's going to be really great terms, interest rates of no more than 2%, uh, no principal or interest due for the first uh, six months. And these will be direct loans from lenders, but guaranteed by the uh, SBA. There are some restrictions that I think are important, uh, and I'll just touch on a couple of those. The employer does have to intend to restore not less than 90% of their workforce uh, as of February 1st, 2020. Uh, And uh, they have to also retain 90% of their workforce until September 30th, 2020. The the monies can, uh, the employer cannot pay dividends or buy buyback stock. So that's also important. They have to agree not to outshore, offshore, um, their jobs as well uh, during the uh, two years uh, following the uh, loan. And there's a few other restrictions around executive compensation and uh, uh, union organizing. Uh, but again, uh, there's going to be more coming out on that for mid-sized employers, uh, and uh, we'll keep an eye out uh, for that uh, as well. So, so we'll, we'll talk about this mid-sized um, business a little bit more in a second. So I just want to clarify that point. So 
whenever we talk about the mid-sized businesses, the mid-sized loan and loan for uh, mid-sized loan guarantee program, we're talking about uh, larger employers, right? Over 500 employees. Chris was just quoting some of the percentages about restoring 90% of your workforce. That only has to do with those pro those programs. Don't confuse it with what we're about to talk about in a second, which is the um, the paycheck protection program, right? That's often a point of, of of some confusion there. So I just want to make sure everybody understands that that requirement really only is for those larger um, businesses. So just a clarification there. Chris, you mentioned in the economic injury disaster loans, this $10,000 um, uh, payment that you get. So even for just applying for the loan, you're eligible for a $10,000 immediate payment, whether you get approved for the loan or not. That's that's pretty substantial. Um, Ju yeah, that's Julie, within three days, with Bill. So, say that again, Chris? Uh, that's within three days of submitting the application. Oh, great. Thank you. I want to turn to Julie for a second because, Julie, in your work with um, many of our smaller customers, less than 50 employees, less than 15 employees, this is an area where um, we've had some, uh, so a lot of questions regarding what happens if I get my, my economic uh, injury disaster loan? What happens with the um, PPP? Can you want to just touch on that for a second? Sure. Thanks, Bill. The nice thing about the economic injury disaster loan is that it can be used in conjunction with and added on to the paycheck protection program. So whatever your calculation is for the paycheck protection program loan, you can add on the economic injury disaster loan as long as you're not exceeding that $10 million number. So that's that number to be, to be looking out for, but you can um, get both loans. Great. Thank you, Julie. So um, we didn't talk about the SBA debt relief or the direct loans for transportation and other critical operations. And that just maybe a quick, a quick thumbnail on those, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, sure, no problem. So the SBA debt relief, that one is, um, they are, it's a loan program that's existed through the SBA and it's up to 5 million for US small businesses again. And it's really more of investing in your business. Um, there are loans for new businesses to get up and running, to pay for, you know, or pay for improvements and your operations, your buildings, things of that nature. So what they've done as part of this is give a little bit of forgiveness on um, paying the principal and interest. So they're, they're, they're um, giving some leeway through September uh, prior, for loans taken prior to September 27th and on new loans too. So, um, so they'll pay some of that principal and interest, which I think is a really good piece for anybody who is taking kind of these investment loans, if you will. Um, the other one is that the, the CARES Act has a whole different set, uh, a whole different bucket of money that it's put together for transportation, cargo, and businesses that are, are critical to the national security. So I know if you're a government contractor, or you're maybe in one of these cargo or air carriers or um, some sort of transport or business that's considered nece uh, necessary under this national security. There's a whole separate uh, bucket of money for that. And we, we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but just know if that, that applies to you that um, there are some specific things about uh, direct loans that come right from, you know, that Treasury is authorizing other monies for that to lenders or direct from the Fed. Great. Thank you. 
So, so um, just a quick note on, on you know, what's available here. Just uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the, the assistance for mid-sized businesses, those, those loans and those loan guarantees, the details are not published yet, right? So that's, so that's um, where we are with those. If we go over to the, to the far right with the, the Paycheck Protection Program, this is, this is the urgent area, right? We're looking at uh, those loans being uh, open for business tomorrow for the majority of small businesses. It's a week later for independent contractors and sole proprietors, but tomorrow is a critical date. So there's a real sense of urgency here. So, so let's, um, we'll, we'll come back to that for a second, but just to remind everybody what those, those, that timing is. Is there anything else here that um, we need to talk about from a timing standpoint? No, I, I, the only thing I would add is just that, um, you know, there, there'll be more coming out, anything that's being authorized by Treasury. So um, beyond the, the Paycheck Protection Program, the midsize that we're talking about, some of the other direct loans, that stuff is all forthcoming and that, that we'll wait and see what the process is. They've, they've really focused on this Paycheck Protection Program first because I think it hits the greatest number of businesses. Great. Okay, thank you, Annette. All right, let's let's move on and talk a little bit about um, some of the, the the payroll credits that are available to to businesses. The uh, employer retention credit and the delay of uh, employer payroll taxes. Is this an area that I should I be paying any attention to this at all? Is it, is this got what what's the relative promise for this? Uh, Chris, maybe is this is this an area that you're you're, you're looking at for clients? Uh, yeah, Bill, I think that, uh, you know, this uh, any size employer uh, can qualify for these uh, retention credits uh, and it uh, it can offer immediate cash flow benefits. Uh, you know, obviously uh, not at the magnitude. It, this isn't as beneficial the magnitude of the uh, PPP, uh, but it's uh, providing essentially uh, um, a tax credit up to 50 percent. Uh, a gross uh, um, uh, payroll up to $10,000. So essentially a $5,000 uh, credit. So I think that's really up for the calendar year of 2020. So I think that's important because it's uh, quick. Uh, and uh, if, uh, if an employer is owed um, uh, additional uh, funds beyond uh, just what uh, uh, you know, they can claim as a credit against their social security taxes due today, uh, that uh, the uh, and that uh, maybe you can expand a little bit on that, but I believe that uh, they can claim that as a refund, correct? Yeah, so um, our, our best understanding of this um, is well, there's two, we've got these two different programs here, so these are separate, just like they look here. You can do one and not the other. Um, but the delay of the there's a delay, one's an actual credit the other ones that just delay so I think that's an important distinction is that the the credit that Chris was just uh, speaking about that's really for any size business and this is that five thousand dollars so the you know, 50% of the first 10,000 in wages that are paid to employees between March 13th and, and December 31st of 2020. So it's a big long period. So that first 10,000, there's this credit that um, an employer can take advantage of if their operations are, you know, either fully or partially suspended. So these are our employers kind of in distress because of COVID related shutdowns and things of that nature. And, and, um, 
so that's a, a credit that they would get and be able to claim. We're assuming without further uh, guidance on the regulations that that's going to come as part of the normal uh, filing of your quarterly taxes, and then you would be able to see it that way. The other one is just this delay piece. And so this just allows employers very quickly to delay, stop paying, uh, or remitting to the IRS the deductions on Social Security, so that 6.2% payroll tax. Now, that does have to be paid back later, and um, but you get to split that over the next two years. So 50% due by uh, 2021 and the other 50% by 2022, giving uh, just some additional uh, uh, cash that can be used today and then paid back at a later date. And I'd like to point out, Annette, that also you can't really uh, uh, take advantage of the Families First uh, Coronavirus Response Act uh, credit for mandatory sick leave and family leave in, in addition to this program. Uh, so no double dipping there, um, as well as um, you, you can't participate in the PPP um, um, and the Small Business Interruption Loan and this at the same time, or can you, Annette? Yeah, I don't think you can. I think that this is mutually exclusive. So this employee retention credit, um, you, I don't think you're going to be able to do with the PPP, that it's one or the other. And so this kind of, so uh, back to the original discussion, Bill, when you're bringing up the mid-sized businesses, what can I do today? You know, today, before, until the loans are available, this might, this credit, this uh, employee retention credit, if you're, if your business is marginalized by this COVID, um, could be something you could take advantage of today for for part of that time. Um, but you're right, Chris, you can't you can't take advantage more than one time under any of these programs for the same reason. So I mean you just have to think of it that way. Yeah. So so just understanding understanding our audience here, and I'll I'll direct this to Julie because of the small business. So how are is this an area that small businesses are relative to the other programs that are available? Is it, how much time is worth spending on this if I'm a uh, if I'm a business under 500 employees? Yeah, I, w- I would say not much. Most of the small group clients are focused solely on the Paycheck Protection Program. Some may be accessing um, the pieces of the Families First Act, but um, you know outside of a small percentage of small groups that may not qualify for the Paycheck Protection Program, outside of that very small percentage, we've really just got small groups focused on the Paycheck Protection Program and taking advantage of that. So if I'm a, if I'm a mid-sized employer over 500, I should definitely be looking at this and taking advantage of some of the immediate opportunities here. If I'm a smaller group, let's focus a little bit more on our next discussion point because this is not not as applicable as it would be because there's no double dipping and things like that, right? So let's let, let's let's shift ahead if we can. Um, so really, this is this is where all the excitement, energy, um, urgency is these days is really around the Paycheck Protection Program. And I'll, I'll just give a quick high overview if I could and then and then address this question, a couple of the questions that came up along the way. So just as a reminder, businesses under 500 employees have the ability to apply for a loan that's worth two and a half times their average payroll last year. So uh, 2019's average monthly payroll times two and a half, that's the maximum loan up to $10 million. Now, this includes pretty much all payroll related expenses, salary, comp, you know, benefits, vacation, 401k match, 
um, severance, uh, all those sort of things, um, as well as state and local um, taxes associated with comp. So uh, two and a half times the monthly uh, payroll is the maximum, but it only counts wages of your employees that are under $100,000. So that's the question that's come up a ton. How do I calculate my, my, my uh, maximum loan amount? How does that $100,000 cap on wages work? Annette, would you wanna maybe, maybe just explain some of the example that we have over here to the right? Yeah, sure. Um, so in this particular example, we wanted to say, hey, here's a standard business uh, and here's and they've got some people who actually earn over $100,000 annually. So again, the loan that you're applying for is going to be based on monthly payroll. So we took that $100,000 and said, okay, what does that equate to monthly? And of course, you know, that's what we have. It's It really equates to somebody whose monthly income is over eight thousand three hundred thirty three dollars and thirty three cents so in our example we've got a business whose total monthly wages that they're paying are 48 grand and then we have two employees who have this compens this monthly compensation that is higher than this 8300 8333 and so we've got employee a earns 10 grand and then you've got employee B at 15 everybody else on there in this group, earns less, somewhere less than that 8,333 um, threshold. So when we go, when the, this, this business would go to um, figure out um, what they can apply for, right, um, that then they're going to look at what's my total wages, taking those people into consideration. So we take all of the people that are under paid less than this 1,000 annually or this 800 eight thousand three hundred thirty three per month that gives us twenty three grand of the forty eight thousand is based on everybody else who's under the threshold then each employee a and b are going to be capped at that eight thousand three hundred and thirty three so then we add those three numbers together to say here's the total compensation that i can claim under this or ask for a loan for and that's this thirty nine thousand six sixty six point sixty six um, so the maximum loan that I could get is two and a half times that, or this ninety nine thousand one sixty six sixty five. So, so just in this example, remember when we talk about compensation, we're talking about all the payroll costs that are in the middle here. Is that right? So we have in this example, total monthly wages were forty eight thousand, but when we adjust below for anybody over hundred thousand, it takes it down to just below forty thousand. And then I can get two and a half times that as my max loan. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Great. Anything, Julie or Chris, you want to add to this um, to this outline? Pretty straightforward. Yeah, nothing to add. Yeah, I think that. Thanks. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Yeah, um, it's, we're it's, actually being asked to go through it one more time too. So, okay. um, maybe if we can just summarize one more one more time on the on the just that you know if you've got anybody that earns over a hundred thousand, when you sit down and say how much can I get a loan for, you're going to add compensation. Set aside people whose compensation is more than a hundred thousand per year. And you're going to cap, you're going to say anything that they earn over and above that 100000 per year, 
you can't claim. You just, you count them as 100,000 and then you divide by 12. So you're, you're, you're saying, what is my monthly? So again, I think that's been the confusion a lot, Bill. And, and Chris, I think you've, you said it earlier when we were all talking about this is that, uh, you know, folks are like, do I just just discount these people and not include their compensation and all. That's not the case. You can include compensation, but only up to that. You're just going to disregard anything above that number. Great. Thank you, Annette. Okay, let's let's take a look, if we can, um, to the, the um, forgiveness part of it. This is really, I think, one of the most compelling parts of the whole program. And um, just in terms of the the uh, 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 oops, sorry, the ability to have um, my loan forgiven in part or in full. So let's say um, I have I have gone for my max. I've applied for a max loan of two and a half times my average monthly uh, payroll, and uh, of course I've kept out those people at a hundred thousand. I get that loan, and so. The, the provisions by which that may be either forgivable in part or in whole are a simple mathematical equation. There's a, in, a, in the baseline for comparison, we are using the uh, average full-time employees for either the first two months of 2020, January and February, that's your baseline, or the average monthly payroll from last February 15th through last June 30th of 2019. Pick whichever one of those is lower. Did you have more people on average in your payroll the first two months of this year, or did you have less people in the period from uh, February 15th through June 30th of last year? That is the denominator of the equation. In the uh, numerator of the equation, you're going to take your average weekly payroll for eight weeks after the loan is originated. That's key. So the, the eight weeks after the loan is originated, you calculate that, that percentage. And in this example that we have here, we just assume that in that eight week period, the average number of employees on payroll was 280. When in the baseline, from 2019, it was 350. That's a that's 80 percent. We employed 80 percent of what we did in uh, 2019 in that window. So therefore, that loan would be 80 percent forgivable. That anybody care to uh, uh, add more to that? Is that fairly straightforward? I think that's the only uh, thing very I straightforward, would, Bill. Yeah, the only thing I would say is just a caveat on the. Uh, full-time equivalent part is um, of the calculation when we were when you were talking about that ratio is that full-time equivalent hasn't been defined yet for us so this is different like when you you this 500 counting at the beginning is you count every full-time or you cover a card up count every part-timer, you count every head to figure out, uh, am I under this 500 for this program? But when it comes to forgiveness, um, of course, they didn't make it easy on us and use the same same terminology, same methodology. So here it's talking about full-time equivalent employees, which most employers you uh, uh, you know who are applicable large employers have in their head full-time equivalent means something specific with regard to the Affordable Care Act right um, you know that full-time equivalent you're, you're adding up hours of people and 30 hours these people are full-time or etc 
but you have to take that out of your head because this has nothing to do with the Affordable Care Act. So what does it mean in this situation? 40 hours, according to the FLSA, is full time. Now do I calculate it differently? Bottom line is we're not sure. Um, guidance is supposed to come out this week. Hopefully it will address that very specifically about what do they mean in this particular law about full-time equivalent. That's the only thing I wanted to add there. And Matt, I think that's a really uh, important information, uh, but I, I'd like to underscore that you know the the really critical um, uh, path here is getting your application in line at an SBA lender. And uh, what what we're recommending is that you pursue the program um, once you understand it. And really, uh, you know, after this presentation uh, and last uh, you know Tuesdays, you should understand it enough to know whether you should be applying for it or not. And I say ninety five percent of small employers ought to be. Get in line because there is going to be a rush for these funds, and that $350 billion will be depleted quickly. You can concurrently analyze the loan forgiveness as we get more guidance, more clarity uh, to determine this. And one more thing, you may, uh, you know, I can't, you know, I want to reinforce this, that the two periods you can choose from in that denominator that Bill was referencing earlier, uh, the comparative period of uh, February 15th, 2019 through June 30th, 2019, or January 1. 2020 through February 2920, you choose the period that's more favorable to you to give you the highest uh, ratio. Now, you want to look at uh, how much uh, loan proceeds you're going to get from either one of those proceeds, as well as uh, the most uh, uh, favorable uh, forgiveness uh, uh, because of the uh, eight weeks post to the uh, post loan for the numerator. That's, Chris, that's, a, that, that's a really that's a really helpful reminder. You know, we're going to get into to a couple more uh, really kind of more technical, complicated questions about this forgiveness piece. But when we when we conclude today, we, we're just going to remind you that the call to action really is to make sure that you are in line right now. Tomorrow morning, your banker should have your your application for uh, for this loan because $350 billion doesn't uh, last as long as it used to these days. There's going to be a lot of people interested in this program. And job one is to get your application in as soon as possible to make sure that um, you can get uh, access to this and take advantage of this program. The stuff that we're talking about right now is when we go through the way that you, you are administering as an employer to really determine did I, uh, am I eligible for forgiveness? And if so, how much? I think it's generally speaking, it's going to be a question of how much forgiveness, not if. And so how much of that will be rolled into a regular loan versus um, we'll be able to, uh, to have forgiven. So Chris, you want to just help us with a couple of these books to the right here to maybe explain a couple of these points in, um, in a little more detail? Yeah, sure. I think, uh, and, and just to tag up what you're saying as well, that you know, a lot of SBA lenders are only working, most SBA qualified lenders are only working with existing customers. So go to your existing uh, uh, relationships uh, uh, for that. So uh, in terms of uh, payroll reimbursed or credits received under the Family First uh, Coronavirus Re Response Act, they can't be included in this uh, loan amount. So no double dipping uh, in that regard. The, the most critical thing I think here for loan forgiveness, and while I think loan forgiveness is imperative and most employers should be able to plan appropriately to receive 100% loan forgiveness, it wouldn't be the end of the world if you didn't because the interest rate on this loan is half a percent, payable over two years, uh, and there's no prepayment penalty, so you can always give the funds back. But any reductions in staffing between February 15th, 2020, and April 26th, 2020, 
uh, won't be uh, counted as long as they're rehired by June 30th. Uh, so that's really important to understand. The converse of that is that any layoffs uh, between April 26th and June 30th cannot be restored prior to June 30th for full credit. So that's really important. That that should be, we would advise you uh, uh, not to have any furloughs or layoffs between the April 26th and June 30th period, uh, it, it, unless you have to. Of course, if there's a business need, uh, a significant business need, but bear in mind, you're getting these funds to avoid furloughs uh, and layoffs. And if you do between April 26th and June 30th, you cannot restore those for the uh, loan uh, forgiveness uh, uh, as well. So delayed insurance premium payments, uh, a lot of uh, insurance carriers, you know, states have encouraged insurance carriers to, uh, to extend grace periods. So these delayed uh, insurance uh, premium payments are not included uh, unless they're actually paid within that eight week uh, period. Uh, so that's really uh, important. And there's a tension here, of course, uh, in this uh, program. Uh, and, and, and it is that uh, you, you have to, you know, you, you, you have to spend the money in that eight week period of time on the qualified expenses. So don't, uh, don't forget that you do need to restore enough employees to work to qualify uh, for uh, forgiveness uh, so that you have qualified expenses within that eight weeks post uh, the loan uh, closing uh, package. So it's not just that June 30th date you should be worried about restoring employees to work. You're, you're going to have to restore employees back to work sooner than that in order to be able to spend all of the loan proceeds in that eight-week period post uh, uh, a loan origination. Back to you, Bill. Thanks, Chris. Um, so just a, a couple of points that you hit on there that I just want to I just want to hit the hit the pause button again for a second just to make sure that we understand. So um, there's uh, the the family first taking advantage of the family first. You can't include those amounts that you get reimbursed from payroll in the in this um, uh, the forgiveness calculation, right? That's the that's the the basic position, right? Okay, just want to make sure I understood that. And secondly. Um, Chris, you hit on a really important point here. This, this green box in the middle is where we get a ton of questions. And the questions usually look something like this. What happens if I have already laid off or furloughed somebody? Am I going to get penalized by that when it comes to this forgiveness calculation? And the, the truth of this is you actually will benefit if you choose to rehire one of those people. And here's, and here's how. So if you've already terminated somebody between February 15th and April 26th, which is 30 days after the, the bill was signed into law. If you terminate somebody in that window, you have until the end of June to hire that person back. If you choose to hire that person back, it gets added to your numerator, essentially. And so it will increase your percentage of forgiveness. That doesn't mean they have to be on the average, so you don't have to carry them for all eight weeks of this window. You can add them before June 30th, and then you get the benefit. So it's an incentive for you to bring them back, uh, but it's not a it's 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 an additional incentive. It's not a penalty by any by any stretch. Um, Bill, do you mind? They, there's a couple other. Pardon me. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, there's a couple of other uh, questions related to that. I think that can really put a fine point on this. Uh, uh, you know, one is if we turn one employer asked if we terminated an employee for cause following progressive discipline, uh, and then a verbal warning, written warning, all their their process on February twentieth, twenty twenty, will that be viewed as a layoff for purposes uh, of the loan forgiveness program? Uh, so the point is, uh, uh, you know, to tie into what you're saying, uh, Bill. 
you just have to replace that employee with another uh, full-time employee equivalent. Uh, and, and that's the way you would handle that situation. Uh, Annette, is that uh, fair to say? Yeah, that's my understanding that it's not about the who, it's just about how many. Great, great point. So again, a lot, of, a lot of questions back and forth with this. Again, we're talking about the eight weeks after the loan is originated, right? We're in the we're in the point where hopefully tomorrow everybody on the call is going to be originating this loan, so you can make sure they get you get access to it. The last point that I wanted to illustrate, and Julie, I don't know if you want to comment on this based on what you're seeing in some states around the country, but when insurance premiums get delayed, like these extended grace periods that some states are either suggesting or requiring. That, that presents a little bit of a, um, a, a point of detail for the employer to pay attention to, right? Absolutely, yeah. They really want to, it's, it's all about that eight-week period. So as carriers are um, giving some premium delays, as long as you are paying back, you could bulk that up together as long as, let's say, you pay April and May premiums all within, even the last day of that eight week period, it still will count towards your loan forgiveness. So it's all about um, whatever you're paying in that eight week period. So just because your carrier says you can take an extended delay or extended grace period, you should be very careful about taking that so that you make sure you pay really as much of your premium as possible in that eight week window, because that'll increase your chances for, um, for uh, forgiveness. Right. So payables, pay, payables here are, are a very important thing to pay attention to. Just a couple of other clarifications. The other expense items, in addition to anything related to employee salary and, and compensation, rent uh, is, is allowable expense. So you can have, have two months worth of rent. Mortgage interest, interest only for mortgage is, is allowable. Utilities, and then certain other lease payments. Um, so those obligations are eligible for, uh, for getting uh, added to the forgiveness, to, to being forgiven if you pay for them in that eight-week window. So again, pay close attention to the payables once you get these loan proceeds in your hand is really what the, the key message there is, I think. Yeah, Bill, I would say that just one other thing on those extras, you know, the operational type things where you've got the interest on the mortgage, the rent and utilities, there is one caveat to that. And those, um, those arrangements had to be in place as of February 15th of 20 in order to be able to claim those expenses. Um, so obviously they should be ongoing things. They aren't newly created a, a new rent of a building or those types of things since to, uh, February 15th. Great clarification, thanks for that. Okay, let, let, let's move on to a couple of other items that aren't directly related to the, to the um, uh, the, the PPP, but this is one that we hear an awful lot since since this whole um, this this whole crisis started. A lot of questions coming from employers about layoffs and furloughs and and unemployment and things like that. So so Annette, what, what, what's what, what's your what's your take on this on this question? So should we be encouraging our employees, um, whether they're furloughed, laid off, or just reduced hours, to be applying for um, for unemployment? And how is that going to affect my business? My thoughts. Yeah, so there's two programs. Number one, I think um, the best advice is, and most employers want to keep their employees whole. I mean, if, if you if you want to have a thriving business beyond this, this um, 
public emergency. You know, you want to have a workforce that's going to be there ready to go for you. If you've had to furlough or lay them off um, and you're not able to pay some or all of their wages, obviously you want them taken care of in some way. So the government in, in as part of this CARES Act have put two additional provisions in place to help states to be able to accommodate even more in unemployment than they already do. And so the first one is this pandemic emergency unemployment compensation. And this gives states an extra 13 weeks beyond what they normally pay for people in unemployment. So um, they have to have obviously uh, exhausted all of their other um, unemployment compensation through the state first before they get this extra 13 weeks, assuming that they haven't been recalled to work or and they're still eligible and all those things. Um, and that they have, you know, no other rights to regular compensation um, and, um, and that they're able to work and actively available to seek work. Those are really the criteria. But it gives this extended period of time because there's, this is such an uncertainty. So the, so the um, act allows the federal government to provide these extra funds to the state. The second thing um, that it allows is this additional $600, which is the emergency increase. So not only can you have it longer, but we're going to give you a little bit more extra money to spend too. So in this particular one, it provides to the states an extra $600 per week for individual over and above what they're normally getting. So these are two pretty significant things to help families during this time. And most employers are, are, are I'm talking to, are concerned if they have to lay them off and they can't pay them that, you know, because they care about them and their family. So these are some really good peace of mind things. Now, as far as how does this affect your business, um, you know, we know unemployment, that employment taxes that businesses pay are based upon how many people are, you know, what the the utilization of unemployment is. So the more people that you utilize, the higher your unemployment taxes, how that pans out and what they're going to do during this time. I've not seen anything yet to say they're going to change any of those rules or calculations. Um, so, but I would imagine if the monies are being provided by the government, like the extra 13 weeks, the extra 600, I would assume that they would give some dispensation and not make that count. But I can't say for sure until we see the regulations come out surrounding um, a lot of the, the provisions of the CARES Act. Again, we just have the framework of what the law was. We don't have any of the real meat and details yet that come through regulation. I think there's some you, qualitative Dad. issues. I think there's some qualitative issues that um, should be discussed as well. Uh, you know, when an employer is considering furloughing versus uh, terminating uh, employees, uh, and and you know, we we see this as a temporal issue, and and most employers, I think, are going to recover and going to need to rely on uh, good relationships with their existing uh, employees and getting back. Uh, to work as quickly as possible uh, so that they can recover, uh, the economy can uh, recover. Furloughing, uh, you know, is, is, I think sends a good message uh, uh, as opposed to laying off. Uh, not a good message, but certainly a better message. And if an employer, you know, wants to maintain that tie with their employees, I think maintaining their uh, health insurance coverage and benefits is also a good way to do that. And the PPP specifically uh, allows, of course, the health insurance premiums uh, to be uh, a, a, 
as a qualified expense and and forgivable. So that's a, you know that's kind of more the business strategy or the the qualitative aspect uh, uh, of this uh, particular issue that I think is important to consider. Are there any downsides? So that would beg the question: Are there any downsides to furloughing uh, uh, versus uh, laying off employees? If uh, Julie, Bill, or Annette, you have any comments on that? I would agree with you, Chris. I think in a situation where you had to choose between a furlough and and a laying off situation, the furlough is what we're seeing a lot of our small group customers go to for exactly those same reasons that you point out. It keeps them connected with the employees. Remember, this is a health crisis, right? So it's keeping those employees and their families with health insurance and access to to the same health insurance that they've been they've been used to and that they understand. And so that's what we're seeing, I would say, more of. But of course, there are always situations where um, that's just not possible. But I would say if there is a choice between the two, we're tending to see that um, that furlough is a is a is a better and really easier um, choice. Yeah, I think you're right, Julie. I think um, we're seeing just that's that's the preferred choice because most of them want to keep their workforce close at hand for whatever they need as as the business begins operation again, or um, maybe they need a skeleton staff to do some things and they're going to need to move that around some, who knows. Um, so I think it just provides a lot more flexibility to the business. And especially if they think their business is going to come back and they want it to thrive in the future, having to go out and find a whole new workforce is a, a daunting task and train them, right? If they're, if you lay them off, they're not your employees anymore. And they could very well go pick up and work for businesses that are actually thriving in this environment. And then you've lost some workforce. So yeah, I think that's a great point, Julie. I want to take a second, if I can, and just introduce a couple of questions that have come in through the Q&A, um, and they're somewhat related to um, the this slide and the previous slide, so I just figured now would be a good time to try to tackle them. Temporary employees, now let's talk about it in terms of the PPP and the forgiveness calculation. Temporary employees, how are they handled? There's no mention of them can being considered than anybody else. Um, if you're paying them, if you're um, paying an individual, regardless of what their status of full-time, part-time, what you call them, temporary, whatever, you still count them. The only caveat there would be if it's coming through a service, if, it, if you're paying through a, um, a temporary yeah. uh, agency. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. So are you paying them directly? If you're paying that person directly, then yeah, you account them. If you're paying some service um, and that service is paying the employee, my understanding is whoever is paying the employee is who's claiming them at this point. Right. Actually so, directly. So yes. Yeah, so in, in any of those situations, if it's going through an agency, it's the agency's employee. You wouldn't factor them into any of these discussions. Yeah, because it's all about the funds being paid out. Who's paying the money? Yeah. Right. So the, the other item that I had was um, related to independent contractors. I mentioned independent contractors in terms of when the availability of the PPP um, application would be. And that's a week from tomorrow. And so independent contractors for what we're talking about here are not considered employees, right? So, so we wouldn't use independent contract contractors at all. That's just for the, for the provisions. If independent contractors are eligible to apply for these funds as well on their own. Right. So here's here's something pretty interesting about independent contractors. We kind of can talk about them in two ways. For the PPP, 
if as part of your business, you normally pay independent contractors to do part of your work, you can include that in your PPP loan calculation, okay? Because that's still compensation of some type that's being paid. So you can actually claim that if you are paying independent contractors. But the beauty of the, this PPP is that, you know, this first wave is really meant for people with employees. So as of Friday, small businesses and sole proprietors who've got employees can file in uh, for these loans. And then a week later, now you have people who don't have employees. This is your independent contractors and um, your self-employed people. They get to go to actually avail themselves of these business loans, which typically they've probably not been, had a whole lot of opportunity to have in the past, especially without you know, all kinds of collateral and things that they that they would need. So this is really to, to recognize all of the gig type workers out there that we have now that we might not have had years ago. And so they've kind of opened it up on this second phase for those people. So if I just talk about the first piece of this where we have you, what you just said about counting independent contractors in payroll related expenses, just clarify that for me. Yeah. So if part of my business is I pay independent contractors to do some sort of work for me um, and that's part of what I need to continue to pay them to do, that can be included in, um, in the monies that I'm asking for to continue operating. Great. Thank you, Annette. Okay, let's 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 keep going if we can. Um, a couple of um, really, I think this is this is what has a lot of workers excited. Maybe Julie, I'll just ask you to kind of just give a little bit of background on individual uh, rebate stimulus checks. Sure. Yes, this is definitely exciting for individuals and households. And within the next three weeks, those individuals and households can start to will start to receive their money. So you can see on here there are a couple caveats and it prorates, the amounts start to prorate and then do have a cap, but at 75,000 um, per taxpayer. And then there's some additional additional monies there for um, children under the age of, of 17. So there are a few notes on the side, just you know, the, if you've filed with the IRS and you have individuals have their direct deposit information, then they really have nothing to do. They'll use that information to send the money directly into those individuals' accounts. If they don't have that, then there's an online sign up to put in some direct deposit information. So we would encourage employees and you know individuals to do that um, if they do not already have they've not already signed up for direct deposit from the IRS. And then if they've not filed, so if an individual has not filed um, a tax return, then there's a simple 2019 tax form that will allow them to do that. So those would be the two call to actions if they're not already um, receiving in years past um, money from the IRS via direct deposit. It would be to go on and make sure they have direct deposit information online or um, if you haven't filed, then you'd fill that information out um, in that 2019 basic tax form. So the you know, I had this question. I, I, I'm sorry, I just was going to add because I had a question from uh, one of our businesses yesterday surrounding this where they had somebody who they have a number of employees who basically don't earn enough in a year to actually file for, file income taxes. So they had never filed and then they were 
they were frightened to file because they were like, are we going to be assessed tax? But no, it's not for the purpose of tax. It's just so that they can, they have somewhere to, to deposit the money. And so um, that made our, our uh, member, our uh, employer feel a little bit better of how to help these people because she was afraid that perhaps this was a whole segment of population that might have been forgotten. It's a great point. So, so just, just re- recapping in terms of what these amounts were, just so everybody understands, it's $1,200 per adult, it's $2,400 if you're filing jointly, uh, plus $500 for each child 17 and under. And those amounts get phased out. By the time you get to $99,000, there's no payment for a single person. So if you're over $99,000, you're not eligible for this payment. Or if on a, a, a married, you're, it's over um, uh, $198,000. I'm sorry, $198,000. Um, so they're, they're gone by $198,000. It phases out entirely by $198,000. So if you're between seventy five and and $99,000, you're going to get something less than $1,200. If you're over $99, you're not going to get anything. And if you're married, you're going to get between $150 between and $198, you'll get a, um, something less than $2,400, and then it phases out afterwards. Hopefully that's clear. I didn't say that very succinctly, but hopefully we get the point. And by the way, these slides and this information, as I mentioned earlier, will be available um, uh, when we follow up with you. Uh, it'll be on the website later today, and tomorrow morning will be distributed to all attendees. Okay, a couple things related to this crisis that are changing the way that we administer healthcare, telehealth. Um, Annette, you want to just do a quick run through of these next couple items? Yeah, so there were a couple of changes made by the CARES Act um, that directly affect your health care spending accounts, so the high deductible health plans. Um, under high deductible health plans, um, in order to be qualified to, conti- to have this health savings account and contribute into it, you can't have any other health plan and you can't have any benefits that are paid before you have satisfied your deductible. So the first thing that they wanted to address was the, the COVID-19 uh, testing to make sure that the testing was an approved preventive care treatment that um, won't disqualify your HSA. So they fixed that with regulation. And then the second thing was any treatments that you receive, that that could be paid prior to satisfying your deductible and not cause your uh, HSA to fail. So that's what they've done. They've said any treatment or testing for COVID, you don't have to satisfy your deductible first, and that won't disqualify your HSA. You'll still be able to continue to contribute to your HSA. So they fixed that to help people get the treatment they need and not worry that they had to meet this big deductible first. The second thing that they did was um, they they tackled the telehealth issue. So this has been a long time issue of people who use telehealth services, that that is considered a group health plan in and of itself. And so because the the legislation under a health savings account says you can't have any other health plan beside your high deductible health plan, it would, if you have telehealth services, it disqualifies, and again, you can't contribute to the HSA. So this they fixed too. So for um, any telehealth expenses that can be reimbursed before you meet your deductible, all the way for plan years on or before December 31st of 2021. So all for the whole calendar years of the rest of 2020 and 2021, people can get their telehealth if they have an HSA high deductible plan with HSA and not worry about um, the fact that, you know, it'll be disqualified because they, they're getting benefits before they satisfy their deductible. Great. 
Thank you, Annette. Um, and then just just one other uh, change re related to the Act Two um, over honors, Julie. Sure. Yeah, I'll just take us. Yeah, just take a minute on this. So the Affordable Care Act actually got rid of over-the-counter um, products without a prescription, and so this is. Um, you know, a change based under the CARES Act that does allow, so beginning with expenses January 1st, 2020, both um, over-the-counter drugs and additional products are qualified medical expenses. So under your FSA, your MSA, or your HSA without a prescription. So that's really, a, I mean, that's a big change and a, and a difference for, for all of, um, for everybody. So save your receipts. <laughs> Yes, save your receipts. Save I know. Back to January. That's tough. Yeah, right. I have not saved any of mine. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so a couple, couple changes in, in uh, the administration of these plans because of how this crisis has changed the way we access health, right? I mean, especially the telemedicine. It's really, it's really exploded. And so it's going to become, I think, uh, a, real, a real part of mainstream healthcare from now on. So um, very fascinating. Okay. Um, just wrapping up with a couple of uh, changes that are going on in the marketplace with carriers um, in terms of eligibility, grace period, COBRA continuation, lots of changes here. Um, Julie, uh, Annette, you want to kind of take us through a couple of these? Sure. Um, I'll just kick it off and then Annette, please, please chime in. Uh, I would say first and foremost on all of this, just make sure you're talking to, to your benefit consultant because there are a lot of, um, a lot of different things happening and a lot of it's depending upon carrier. And then even within carriers, there could be a certain state that those same carriers are allowing in multiple states, but not allowing in some specific states. So we're, we can't get into all of the differences here, but please check with your benefit consultant. They definitely will absolutely know, um, you know the, the carrier and that rule in the specific state. So we're seeing things um, on the eligibility side and offering special enrollment. And even just from yesterday or really after the CARES Act, we're starting to see come out from different um, carriers extending those special enrollment dates. So whereas maybe some of them were putting April 3rd or April 6th, now we're seeing that extend out, which ties right to that um, June 30th date. So we're seeing some of them start to, to change some of those rules and then, um, you know, see the other pieces up here on the uh, premium grace periods as well as some information on COBRA. But I do know there are some things that I'd love Annette to cover on just some things to be thinking about as it relates to, to these items. Uh yeah, thanks, Julie. The, they're, you know, everybody's trying to figure out how to let people be covered for longer periods than they can. And especially, Chris, when we were talking about the furlough stuff earlier, I mean, this is one of the big areas. Like, when they're furloughed, maybe I can't pay wages, but could I continue their health plan? And, you know, what can I do here to at least help people? And uh, the issue is that um, the COBRA laws are very specific about do you have any active employees? You're going to match what other active employees have. If you have no other active employees, then technically you don't have a health plan. And so this is where the carriers are stepping in and saying, well, maybe we can let you have a health plan. So, so, we're, so there's a lot of these accommodations that the laws are not up to date with. So trying to figure out what you can and can't do, what you shouldn't, shouldn't do. I mean, my biggest, um, 
piece of advice is everybody has a unique situation and to really work closely with your benefits consultant, who's the one who can really guide you through a lot of these issues. Not only the market, what what do I have? What can my carrier do? But then let's look um, at, at what's allowable under the law and then where do we go from here? Do I have to change plan documents? Can I allow other people in or out? So it's nice that the carriers are making these accommodations. It gives you choices. It doesn't necessarily mean, wow, what they're saying I should take advantage of before I consider all of the facts or figure out how to do it in the right way. Right. There's one one more item there that I just didn't mention is the big thing also that's happening is there are many carrier or many carriers and states allowing change to contributions. We talked about that a little on Tuesday is how can we maybe yeah. get creative with you on that? And just that again goes back to make sure it's it's allowable by the carrier or in your market. I post Tuesday's call, I was talking to some of our team from the state of Washington and and that happens to be a market where um, they're not allowing changes to to employer contribution, and so back to just what we've we've all been saying of Bill and Annette is just that um, definitely it's a unique situation. Talk to your consultant to understand what your carriers and in your markets is allowable. Yeah, I think there's two pieces to every one of these things. Just what you said, Julie. Allow you know, figure out what the carrier is letting you do that's outside the norm, and then. Um, figure out if the state is prohibiting or allowing that as well. And then the third thing is, now what does my actual plan document say today? Because you can't violate your plan document. That would create a whole can of worms. How do we need to amend the plan document to accommodate what you want to happen? And so I think that using your consultant to bridge all through all those discussions and, and kind of do the heavy lifting is really going to be important in this time while you're, you're working on your business. Thank you, Nat. So I'm going to try to wrap things up here. But before I do, I'm going to give the panelists an assignment, okay? Um, As we get to wrap, I'm going to allow you to choose one question that's on your list that you would like to work through um, in 45 seconds or less as we wrap up, just to give a one more bonus round of questions. I've got one for myself. Okay, so as we begin to wrap up, I I thought I would just summarize with – Sorry, the the uh, some some key takeaways that we want to emphasize here, and the first call. These are really kind of the calls to action, and the first is to really understand which of these programs is going to work right for you, and to focus in on them. For most of us, this is the um, the, the 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 PPP, the the paycheck uh, paycheck protection program. But know what you're going to do, and and really. Um, and really focus on that. And tomorrow is the first wave of applications are being accepted. I know some banks are backlogged. They're saying that they're not going to be able to accept them right away. I heard that a couple of the big banks were hiring 2,000 or more people to process what's coming through. So they're expecting a huge wave here. But be persistent with your banks, especially on the PPP. If you're over 500 employees, be on the lookout for the mid-market loan program. Those details will be coming down the pike soon. And, um, and I think if you're, if you're going for the PPP, just start to think about how you're going to manage your business just a little bit differently to make sure that you can maximize your forgiveness opportunities because there are some things there that, um, that you'll want to uh, make sure that you do appropriately. Payables is one of the biggest ones. Making sure you pay as many of those allowable expenses as you can within that eight-week window. And finally, as Julie said, just work with your benefit consultant to make sure that you can pursue some of the 
uh, allowable benefit changes that might help you save money in this um, in this period of time when we're really managing things aggressively. One of the, Scott, the slides that I glossed over at the end was just making sure that when we make mid-year plan changes, there are certain compliance requirements that you're going to need to be on top of, and your benefit consultant can help you with those. So, without further ado, I'll start on the West Coast and ask Chris if you would start and just maybe just pose one of your um, questions that you'd like to offer up for the group. Sure. I think this question is really interesting uh, because it really uh, goes to a business strategy and you got, you know, maybe rethinking uh, your business during that uh, this uh, critical time. Uh, the question is, if we have no work for employees to do during this time period, do they go home and we still pay them? Uh, are they required to be at the facility working during these eight weeks? And there's some more questions uh, in that question, but I'll, I'll stick with that. So I think this is really important. Uh, some employers are saying, well, uh, we really can't send our employees back to work and maybe it's uh, uh, you know, manufacturing or uh, that's a non-essential uh, business. It's something where the employees can't actually uh, all uh, go back and be productive uh, employees. So I would urge employers to just take a step back and think about, okay, what are all the things you would love to do for your employees during this, during the normal course of business, but you never have enough time uh, because they're so busy just getting the job done, perhaps training, online certifications, uh, other, uh, you know, other culture building uh, activities uh, that you can reasonably assign, uh, you know, uh, for these employees uh, to self-educate and maybe uh, creating some kind of accountability uh, component uh, as well. So that's kind of how I'd be thinking about it. Um, I, I don't think there's, as far as I can tell, and, and, and that I'd love to get your, uh, you know, your opinion on this. As far as I can tell, there's no requirement they have to go back to your physical location uh, to do the specific job they were doing before. Uh, we're all, you know, we're, we're all working remotely from our homes and I can guarantee none of us are doing exactly what we were doing before, uh, even though we're still uh, conducting our uh, business. Yeah, um, uh, really, they have to just be doing work. I mean, you can um, repurpose. I mean, everywhere um, in the uh, in both the CARES uh, Act as well as the Family First Coronavirus Response Act. It all talks about working or teleworking. I mean, teleworking has become a, um, a mainstay now for uh, pretty much the whole country uh, other than people who have uh, line-type jobs. But are there things that you can still have them do for the business and that is wor that's worthwhile and maybe just done in a different fashion? So I think those are all good things worth exploring, Chris. How about you, Julie? Your question. I would say um, the, the number of questions that I'm seeing focus around um, if I've furloughed employees and if I reinstate them and if I give them back pay or if I've dropped their, their comp by 25% and I re restore their pay, um, will it count towards loan forgiveness? And the answer is yes to all of those things if if you do that within the eight week period post loan origination. So all of those things, the more you can do um, within that eight week period, the better chance for the higher amount of loan forgiveness you have. And like we've mentioned, if you do things post, um, post that eight weeks, but before the June 30th, it helps. But the key pieces are within, within that eight week period post loan origination for all of those, those things to happen to have the biggest impact on the loan forgiveness. Great, Annette. 
I think um, um, a couple big things having to do, I'm just going to focus a little bit back on the benefits side of things, on making all these plan changes. And um, one of the questions we hear a lot, especially because all of the schools are closed and people are staying home um, to take care of kids and they're, uh, you know, um, and they have money in their dependent care accounts. The question is, can we change that mid-year? And there needs to be no additional regulation or um, or any anything um, new. The dependent care um, accounts allow mid-year changes anytime the amount you're changing for the dependent care changes. So if you've got a spouse who now is at home with the kids and you're not paying for, because that the monies that you were setting aside for that care have now changed, you can you can make a mid-year change to, to your dependent care account. So people can do that today. And I saw a number, uh, uh, I get that a lot, and I saw a number of those come through on today's too. So hopefully I've answered that for you all. Great. Thank you, Nat. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Chris. I'll just offer up my last comment. It's not a question. It's just a comment. And it goes to the importance of continuing to run your business as effectively as possible. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about benefits and all these uh, provisions that affect the world of insurance and employees and payroll and things like that. But, you know, the, the, it, there's no substitute for running your business as, a, as aggressively and, and as prudently as possible during these really, really challenging times. And I would just say, although we're talking about the, all these terrific opportunities with some of these loan programs, remember that I think running the business according to your instincts and according to what you think you need to do to be competitive, to survive this period, and then to thrive when we come out of this, this economic uh, crisis, I would just say make sure we don't lose sight of that. Don't let the tail wag the dog and worry as much about all these programs. Still worry about the genuine health of your business first. So. Um, there's my two cents. Anyway, let's wrap up if we can. And so first of all, thank you to all of our panelists for, for their time and effort. Really appreciate it. Most of all, to all of our attendees for the time that you continue to invest in, in learning as much as you can about these programs and how you can put them to work for your company and for your employees. We really appreciate the fact that you continue to invest your time with us. And we really thank you. And we invite you to come back to, the, to our website where we've redesigned things quite a bit to really focus more energy and um, and focus on the uh, stimulus part of the CARES Act. So please come back and hopefully you'll find uh, all the information you need there. Thank you again for all your time and uh, have a terrific day. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. There's never been a time more than now during which our commitment to standing as one with our customers and providing peace of mind is more important. We are committed to providing the guidance you need to make complex decisions even in the most challenging times. For additional resources, thought leadership, or for the latest employer information related to the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit onedigital.com forward slash coronavirus. Thank you.